This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. This week, I thought we would talk about the crazy prices that are stalking where I am, where you are, and lots of places in the world. Also, I think we have a major historical figure to bid farewell to. And elections are coming. The countdown begins now. So we have lots to talk about, you and me. We do, but we want to make it clear to our listeners that Jonathan was not on vacation. He was just quiet quitting the podcast. Quiet quitting. So on trend. I was doing nothing of the sort, of course, but I am Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And this is Unholy. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. And a new theme tune for a new season. Co-hosts still very much Jewish. Jonathan, unless something bizarre happened on vacation that you'd like to share. That would be quite a big headline, wouldn't it? If just 14 days... I think so. 14 days in the French countryside was enough to make me convert to what? What would it be? Catholicism in the French countryside, maybe? No, that didn't happen. I don't know. No, that (laughs) didn't happen. Um, I did recharge my, you know, emotional and spiritual, physical batteries, I feel. It was a very Mm -hmm. easy... But, you know, we are plunged right back in. And, you know, the minute you open up... No, I want to hear more about this because I'm not jealous enough. So I just want to hear just a little bit more uh, about how you've charged your... Batteries. Well, there was a lot of sunshine involved. And there was, you know, access to a swimming pool involved. That's always good. And eating more than I should. And reading, might be trying to whittle away the pile of books that has built up by the bedside. And reading some mm-hmm. books, old and new. Um, we might talk about those at some point. I, you know, I was pleased with my reading choices. And so, yeah, I felt good. And then always that thing, isn't it? It's the last day, the travel day back then kind of erodes all the benefit you've had. So it's like you drain, <laughs> you've recharged the battery and then you immediately drain it just with airports. And I may have mentioned before, I don't love flying. And so queuing and flying and being, and then suddenly you feel a bit less rested. And then of course you come back to the world and all the news that has been going on. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's not necessarily lifting. Um, but no, it's, um, I'm obviously looking forward to a new season of Unholy and chatting with you and being back in the swim of things. Yes, you have this um, sort of perplexed look on your face. You're like, everything's fuzzy. No, it's good. I think um, <laughs> September, and always, you know, there is that pre-Rosh Hashanah feeling where there is a feeling of renewal. I do, as I've made this point before, January the 1st is obviously not a beginning of a new year. That's just ridiculous. That kind of the global <laughs> calendar, the Roman calendar, whatever, Gregorian, whatever it is, wrong. Um, September is the beginning of a new year. We know that. And it fits with the seasons and it fits with the academic year and the agricultural year and the Jewish year. So we will talk about that, I'm sure, in our Rosh Hashanah programs. But I've got the intimation of that. I came back to London that's already a little bit autumnal. You can just, you know, a few mm-hmm. leaves are off the trees, etc. So that feels like it's... Um, uh, you know, fitting. And so, yeah, you have the usual thing, sadness that summer's over, but some energy about the new year. Yes. Well, it, here uh, in our neck of the woods, first of all, the sound you're hearing is a collective sigh of relief of uh, the parents of almost 2 million uh, children beginning school today. It's September 1st in Israel. There's always this tradition, longstanding tradition for the Teachers Association to threaten a last minute strike. So usually it happens that only on the morning of September 1st do kids uh, realize that they're actually going to school. This time around, it was resolved about 20 hours ahead of schedule. So yay, a very emotional day. And I'm just talking about myself. I think my kids were okay. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but there is, that a, is what it's relief. I can see relief on your face because that would have been quite after what two months of having lots of little, yes. I mean, three little kids around. And as you say, a few weeks before Rosh Hashanah, which is another very long vacation in Israel, right? So you kind of need that sort of interim of go to school, children. And but yeah, what so do, you what have if, that, which is nice. I've been me I've wondered about this before. What do Israeli families do in that situation? Because it is a very long summer vacation. Mm-hmm. You've got suddenly yes. you know if both parents work, you've got three year olds and five year olds around. What on earth does do families do? Is it suddenly that's when the grandparents kick in, I'm guessing. Exactly. See you got the whole Israeli experience. It's uh it's completely that. Summer camp with grandparents and uh, high holidays with grandparents slash babysitters. Yeah. Um, yes, there is no uh, correlation or not a very intelligent correlation between the schedule of parents 
uh, work days and children's uh, vacations in this country. It might day might be fixed one day. Um, as you said, you were uh, on vacation. I, uh, on the other hand, met many of my friends who were on vacation, uh, many American friends and family that came over here and talked about two things more than anything else, Jonathan. And I assume that when you arrive here someday, you'll talk about these two things as well. One is, of course, the high uh, cost of living in Israel more than anywhere else. We will discuss this maybe a little bit on the show today and also uh, in our next couple of episodes, but also the fact that Tel Aviv really just looks like a huge construction site. It's very, very hard to get uh, uh, around here. The reason is, first of all, that the city is adding a few hundred thousand uh, apartments in the next couple of years. Also, at the same time, simultaneously, it is Israel, so we do everything at the same time. We're adding uh, uh, light trains and an underground. So all this is happening at the same time, and it kind of feels like walking in this huge dystopian snakes and ladders game, really. Huh? This is what the city looks like. The most expensive city in the world, one should add. I know. We we're going to talk about all of this and why it comes about, but just on the construction point... Mm -hmm. Because I realized I do have a sort of idealized memory of the city from, I mean, I've been there many, many, many times more recently, but the it was locked into my mind when I first, from the first few visits. And in a way that image is preserved, you could walk and find somewhere quiet. You know, you it didn't take yeah. you too far to get somewhere that was not a heaving construction site. Now, how far do you have to get from, you know, Dizengoff to find somewhere that isn't? hucking and banging <laughs> um you know noisy <laughs> i would say the answer to your question is ra nana yeah really. i mean that's is how it, far though, you have to right, get from dizengoff it, it, it is <laughs> um, that's what i i mean no joke to get away from the sort of loud traffic and building you have to what get yep. in a car and drive quite far away before you ever get a clear if space if you're not stuck in traffic if you're not stuck in traffic yes i mean you really the city has turned from the city that never stops to a city that never stops building and the depressing thing is i kind of went on the israeli the the tel aviv municipality site this morning to sort of prepare for a conversation and they kind of say to you right uh, there's a good reason to wait change is coming i'll add that change will come if it doesn't get stuck in traffic but change is coming and the whole thing they say will will uh, culminate the infrastructure working will be over in 2040, which means, Jonathan Friedland, then when your son and my daughter are doing a podcast <laughs> in the year 2040, maybe the infrastructure work will be over. Uh, that's a nice thought, isn't it? Not the infrastructure work, the your son and my daughter. I, so, anyway, nice. so, uh, I, I, yes, I, you know, okay. I do like that thought. But the, Unholy the, the next generation. I, I mean, why, why do we just talk about the cost thing? Because this is the big global issue of our time, the, co uh, mm -hmm. the cost of living, surging inflation double-digit inflation in this country um the you know people are engaged in all kinds of blame games about what is the cause of it is it to do with absolutely surging energy prices terrifyingly high energy prices where because of the war in russia and in ukraine with the russia cutting off its uh, supply of oil and gas to the west prices of, of energy have gone so high that people are looking here at bills in the multiple thousands of pounds which could put businesses out of business and so on inflation really high but it's even worse i mean not in terms of the actual headline inflation figure but in terms of how it feels the cost of living in israel even worse where you are yeah it's interesting you know first of all we talked about tel aviv crowned the most expensive city in the world right we talked about it in episode 36 and in episode 34 um <laughs> but um but when you juxtapose it with the rest of the world so interesting thing is that israel wasn't hit by inflation as hard as Britain was or the U.S. was, right? Israel's inflation is like 5.2% um, for all sorts of reasons. But the cost of living to begin with was so much higher, right? Because the, the housing prices that went on, uh, uh, they went up 18% uh, in a year. The fact that there's lack of competition in the real retail and the import section, all of this makes Israel expensive anyway. So even if inflation is not as high as it is in other places, it's very, very expensive to live here. Look who's been reading the financial newspaper while the other co-host was sitting in a lounge chair in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. Now, here, um, I, I know I'm impressed. I'm going to get this out of my system this episode. I'm never going to mention it again. No, the holiday envy. So, yes, well, the inflation thing here, there's a particularly local cause. Brexit, I would say, has played a big part in it in terms of supplies. You can't readily get imports easily, which would always enable there to be, you know, some competition and therefore, I mean, increased supply and therefore lower prices. What is the peculiar explanation 
for you you know not as you said you've explained not not that inflation isn't the issue but why it's so peculiarly expensive to the point where as we've said before in this podcast tel aviv is ranked it's not just anecdotal it's officially ranked as the most expensive city in the world what explains it well there are a lot of explanations but i think uh, two main ones would first of all, be the uh, high uh, price of housing. And this happens, first of all, because for many years, interest rates were low, so demand was very high. And again, think of this country that is supposed to, uh, according to forecasts, double its population by the year 2050. Then you understand that there's a particular amount of apartments and particular amount of people who are growing pretty quickly. And then you're going to just have, you know, more demand than supply. Pretty simple. Uh, So that is one thing that makes Israel very expensive, the cost of, of rent and the cost of housing. And again, since there really is not enough competition in areas like important areas like retail and too much regulation, all this makes for a very expensive country. So what are people, if anybody is doing this, proposing to do about it? You've mentioned, and we all know, that elections are coming. In a normal country, this would be the big election issue. The different candidates would be saying how they propose to deal with this impossible cost of living. Uh, I mean, are people right. coming up with our, our, our options? Right, but this, obviously it's part of the discussion. The interesting thing is, of course, you said a normal country, normal being the operative word. We live in a situation in which I think it's not, it's it's a little bit similar to, to the United States, right? The whole sort of political discourse has been sucked into Netanyahu is good or bad, right? That is what everything is ta- everyone is talking about. So Netanyahu will say, look, this has been such a tough year uh, from the financial perspective, and it's all because of these people, right, who are now, uh, Yair Lapid, who's now prime minister, and Naftali Bennett, who was prime minister, it's their fault. And the people who are against Netanyahu are saying the exact opposite. Sir, you were in charge for 12 years, and a part of what is going on is because of your policies. Look, at the end of the day, you can't also deny the fact that Israel is part of the global economy. And if everyone is suffering, and if inflation is high everywhere, it's going to be a problem uh, here as well. So yes, it is a discussion, but no, there isn't enough of, I think, an explanation why and what people will do, because there's much more going on besides the economy. I know it's strange, but that is the way it is. Well, let's talk about some of the other stuff then, because I need a bit of a catch up on the politics <laughs> of all this i know it's only what is it it's eight weeks to go it, Ameri- ele- israeli elections coincide more or less with the midterm elections in the united states so it's election countdown in both places um i mean what have i missed in the words of hamilton what did i miss while i was in france <laughs> actually i think it was jefferson i don't want to be that specific no i meant hamilton the show but it was jefferson is what I meant. I mean, no i know i was just trying to be yeah. you know petty petty yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this is what you missed. 62 days for, uh, till elections. It feels like it's been going on for a while, right? I mean, seriously, in campaign terms, we're still on the tarmac, right? The plane hasn't really, uh, taken off yet, except I think for Netanyahu always feels like it's in, he's in a campaign, but it doesn't feel like a campaign yet. It's been two months. There are still two months to go. Um, I think the main thing, uh, that happened sort of while we were on our brief hiatus, uh, was the fact that the two far-right leaders, uh, Bessalus Smoltich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, decided or agreed on a joint run in the same way that they ran uh, last time. But now, we should say together, they have seven seats in the Knesset. Polls give them, Jonathan, something around 12 or even more. That is 10% of the Knesset. Uh, We should add that the man who arranged for this union is Netanyahu himself, by the way, made sure that no picture would come out of the three-way meeting in which he uh, made sure that Smotrich and Benkville will sit together. But I do think uh, it should be, or is, high time to talk about uh, the Itamar Benkville phenomenon. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I really do think we have to talk about it, and it is depressing. (laughs) I think the what you've just said there about the polling suggesting this really far-right figure would be getting um, 12 seats. To me, the politics of this figure are Kahanis. They're in the tradition of Mayor Kahana, who it was such a big deal when he got one and then eventually, I think, two seats in 84 and 88 Mm or, you know, and famously, I think the media would used to boycott them they wouldn't put him on the on tv that other people in the knesset would walk out including yitzhak shamir uh the prime minister at the time mm-hmm. would just not um wanted nothing to do with those sorts of racist politics as he as the right saw them as Likud saw them 
And then now, I don't think the politics are any or significantly different. And yet, instead of being shunned and ostracized and banished into sort of political outer darkness, instead, as you say, sitting with a former prime minister, 12 seats becomes very, very hard to ignore in a 120-seat parliament. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just another proof of how far things have moved to the right. But uh, I suppose the point is that the days of them being untouchable and not in a coalition are absolutely over this he will be presuming the netanyahu bloc wins enough seats he will be there and he'll be a minister if uh the netanyahu bloc wins enough seats look i think the the question here is what ha- and, and you kind of uh related to that in what you said what happens to what happened to Israel? And I would add a question, what happens to the world? Because I think this phenomenon is also part of a, of a global trend. What happened to make this man so popular? Remember, as you said, a right-wing extreme politician. He entered the public sphere as the descendant, the political descendant of Meir Kahan and his racist teachings. His rhetoric has been very extremely anti-Arab for many, many years. Remember, this is a man who appeared on the scene at, at the age of 19 an activist against Yitzhak Rabin, he said that, and I'm sure you remember this infamous uh, uh, moment where he stole the emblem of, of Rabin's car and he said, we got to his car, we'll get to the man himself. This is how he has uh, begun, he began his career in the Israeli uh, public sphere. Now, first of all, uh, what, what happened, right? You're talking about Israel moving very far to the right. I would claim that, um, and I'm not trying, Jonathan, in our conversation here to justify anything about the Benville phenomenon just to look at it and try to explain what happened here. I would firstly claim that you cannot understand his anti-Arab rhetoric without realizing that Israel is in many ways a post-traumatic country, suffering years and years of terror attacks. And, and, and in the same way that you kind of can't understand the anti-Muslim rhetoric without understanding 9-11, I think you can't understand the Itamar Ben-Gvir phenomenon and his uh, words against Arabs without understanding that Israelis lived for many years under this fear of, of terror. Now, why did I say that this is also a global phenomenon? Because he is a very successful populist, right? Offering these simplistic the simplistic panacea to a very complicated problem. Um, and this is what he's saying, right? essentially, right? To, to take uh, all of the uh, terrorists out of here, or let's take all of, you know, this is, by the way, we're hearing, we're seeing a very, a little bit of a glossed over Itamar Ben-Gvir version, these elections. And this is the point I want to make, because what he has done in his journey into the heart of the Israeli mainstream, I think is spun around uh, about a decade, maybe more, right? Because he became a lawyer. This was an issue with the Israeli uh, Bar Association, but he did become a lawyer. He did become someone who defended right-wing activists and right-wing terrorists. And then you saw him more and more on television because he was these people's lawyer. And the more he's on television, the less he's ostracized, the more he's legitimized. And this is something that he knows how to play upon. Now, again, the more he's trying to become more of a mainstream leader, you you had this point where you saw him a few weeks ago yelling at his supporters, who are usually following him around and yell something like, death to all Arabs. He turned to them and said, stop yelling, death to all Arabs, yell, death to all terrorists. This is what he is doing in order to become a more and more legitimate uh, leader. I don't know if by the end of this uh, uh, road, he will indeed have 12 seats in the Knesset, but he's definitely something that is very, very difficult to ignore. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, the change in rhetoric, if it is purely designed just to get him through an election, and perhaps slightly widen his base. But do, you know, the impression I get from what I read about him is that he is unrepentant in terms of his politics, he is still essentially a Kahanist, and that itself hasn't changed that he is a racist who has, uh, you know, a a kind of supremacist attitude to the Arab citizens of Israel. Uh, but, you know, I, I would love to be wrong and think that what he's doing is anything more than a rhetorical change. It would be nice if it is, but that's the strain in Israeli politics, I think, he's tapping into and representing. Yes, and, and the interesting thing, I'll just remind you, remember last time around, the person who prevented Netanyahu from sitting in a government with uh, the United Arab List was Bezalel Smotrich. Itamar Ben-Gvir was willing to do that. So that shows you a little bit of a difference between them. 
But look, for many parts of Israeli society, he is the boogeyman, right? And so the question is not only how many people will come to vote for him, but how many people will vote against him in the Israeli left, in the Arab community. That answer to that question will determine these elections. And also interesting to wonder if next time around would... Ben-Gvir and Smotrich hold the line against participation in a coalition with an Arab party? Would they split Ben-Gvir going one way, Smotrich going the other way? Or would an Arab party go anywhere near being in, a, in any kind of arrangement which puts them on the same side of the aisle as them? All those are questions that might come up given we don't know what the arithmetic will be. The other election issue, and well, you tell me if you think it is an election issue. I suspected it was that um, that happened again while we were off having our unilateral one-sided break no break for you but for me <laughs> the other thing i wanted to talk about was this move by israel closing seven palestinian ngos organizations that it accused of channeling aid to militant groups um and this was a move that was condemned by the un as being totally arbitrary very you know very dramatic scenes that did make headlines outside Israel with Israeli security forces raiding the offices of these groups, confiscating computers and taking equipment away. Um, Israel said, look, the groups were being used by uh, the PFLP, one of the uh, armed groups mm -hmm. that it declares a terrorist organization, said they were being used as sort of, in a way, as a front. Funds were going through to them. But the UN mm -hmm. said uh, that these, uh, you know, they hadn't supplied credible evidence of that the reason why i link it to um the election is that this was ordered uh, by the defense minister benny gantz and we have talked about him as a player in these elections mm -hmm. and so you know my jaundiced eye looked at this and thought there's a guy who's trying to find a way to look like he's tough on terror that he can be mr security in terms of dealing with the palestinians Benny Gantz has a bit of a centre-left image, perhaps, because of the Blue and White Party he co-founded. And therefore, if he wants to win over some votes in the centre-centre-right, well, bashing a few Palestinian NGOs, to me, it looks a horribly anti-democratic move. These are groups that are not uh, military organisations. They're you know, civil organisations, and it looks very heavy-handed for the military to go in and start taking away their computers and so on. You know, put aside my, you know, that, the opinion bit of it. Do we, as a matter of analysis, think this was mm -hmm. Gantz electioneering? Yeah. Well, first of all, there is that strain of analysis saying that, as you say, it's not a terrible move for Gantz, as you say, trying to look like he's Mister Security, being tough on terror. So I don't know how much of it is motivated by this, but it's definitely um, there are analysts who would say that and agree with you on that. I think I should just say one thing. Um, this is not the first time that Israel claims that NGOs are a shield or a sort of cover-up for terror organizations. I think what happened here was Israel had less, let's say, evidence to back this up. And at other occasions, there was more evidence. And here, something fell through. Uh, with the, because I think if there was good enough evidence, there would be less of a, of an attack on, on what Israel was doing, a criticism on what, about what Israel's doing. I think what happened here was that there was less evidence and that why, that's why Israel was having a hard time. But definitely, Jonathan, everything that is going on in every aspect from the Palestinians, Iran, Lebanon, everything that you see is going on has to be viewed through the prism of Israeli elections. This is what matters to everyone, all of the political players, Gantz, Lapid, Netanyahu, and everyone else uh, right now. So there are other things going on in the world. I know this is a huge surprise to you, Jonathan. There are other things going on in the world besides Israeli elections. Um, and we want to talk about the death of Mikhail Gorbachev this week. And I think we have a special guest to do it with. David Remnick is a longtime friend of the podcast, also obviously the uh, editor of the world's leading weekly English language journal, The New Yorker magazine. But crucially for this week's purposes, uh, a former Moscow correspondent and author of Lenin's Tomb, uh, a prize-winning book which recounted the last days of the Soviet Union. And so, David, extremely good to talk to you again, as I said, friend of Unholy. Uh, he did it by I'm order of importance, David. <laughs> <laughs> if you noticed um, that. I, I know, friend of Unholy was top of the bill. 
Um, presumably you were reporting close up on Mikhail Gorbachev and I assume you met him and spoke to him, but just, I mean, really, as an opening thought, just that on the man who you saw close up and what you made of him. I, I think, Jonathan, what was so striking about him is that he came from an insane system, you know, the post-Stalinist world, which was populated by provincial party hacks who had replaced people who had been purged. I mean, you can't imagine the level of mediocrity and maybe until you see today's U.S. Congress, but, but that's another <laughs> matter. And he was raised, it, both grandfathers were arrested during Stalinist time. He was raised in a tiny village in southern Russia. And he goes the track of being a, a loyal a Communist Party hack, but a, a bright one goes to Moscow State University and enters this track and wends his way up the ladder of the Communist Party, which was an unimaginably uh, decrepit organization by then, dominated by the KGB. And he reaches the top after the gerontocracy had kind of died off, determined to renew the system, not to destroy it, but to renew it, to reform it, and that's where the adventure begins. And what's so striking about Gorbachev as opposed to his predecessors, who could only be reimagined by uh, Alberto Iannucci in the death of Stalin hmm. as the criminals and hacks that they were, is that he was a fairly normal human being who loved his wife and who had friends and spoke a language that was recognizable to not only his fellow um, comrades and citizens, but also the rest of the world. And thus began the adventure and misadventures of Mikhail Gorbachev. You mentioned adventures and misadventures, and I'm thinking of, you know, I can't not think of my both my parents who were uh, born in Eastern Europe and emigrated to Israel mid-late 50s. Uh, and to them, first of all, the most, I think, important you know, moments of history in their lives was the fall of the Berlin Wall. They treated mm -hmm. Gorbachev like a hero. He didn't mean for all of this to happen, really. I, I think there were things he meant to happen and things he didn't mean to happen. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, certainly the collapse of the Soviet Union, not only did he not mean it to happen, he was against it. Mm -hmm. He was against it. That was the drama, the final drama with him and Yeltsin and the various leaders of the Republic. I think the liberation of Eastern and Central Europe, however, he did allow to happen. Mm -hmm. I remember very distinctly going to Berlin on a you know Gorbachev trip, and he, where he was basically there to kiss Eric Honecker, the head of East German uh, of the East German regime, goodbye. And I remember distinctly sitting in a press conference with his spokesman Gennady Gerasimov, who was uniquely funny and weird. And um, we asked him, of course, what had transpired between Honecker and Gorbachev. And he said, well, we gave him the Frank Sinatra doctrine. What was the Frank Sinatra doctrine? doctrine? Uh, you do it your way, my way. You know. So in other words, he was saying to Honecker, baby, you're on your own. And without Soviet power behind East Germany, what was going to happen? And the same was true when he went to Cuba and he told that to Castro. He made those signals very clear to the, to, uh, throughout Eastern Europe without the acquiescence of, uh, of the Soviet regime, you would have had a repeat of 1968 when tanks rolled into Czechoslovakia. Instead, you the Czechs went out onto the streets, and, <laughs> I, I mean, I was there, um, in the next window, in fact, um, when a playwright, a playwright who had been a dissident, suddenly becomes the leader of the country in a matter of days. Why? Because of a popular revolution on the street. And what's amazing to me, Jonathan and Yonit, is right now we're sitting in 2022. And very profoundly, our children are imagining and living in a world of profound pessimism, illiberalism, rising authoritarianism, hacks everywhere in the three of the countries that we live in. Imagine a time when democracy, democracy was on the march in the late 80s, early 90s. Imagine a time in Israel when the resolution of the longest standing conflict in its history was possible, more than possible. And all of this has been erased, and it's a dark time. But I think it's important to remember different times and different possibilities, and Sometimes the imagination and humanity of a leader can be in sync with history to such a degree 
that good things happen. And I think that's an important thing to cling to. I, I just want to pick up your point about what he intended, uh, how much of he wanted and what he didn't want. And I took from what you said that, yes, the falling away of the Soviet empire, perhaps yes, but the Soviet Union, no, he still believed mm. in that. And he was um, a communist. So without both, uh, all three of us becoming kind of Marxist historical determinists, <laughs> <laughs> this, this question about how much, regardless of his intention or desire, it was inevitable that the moment he took that first step on that path of those words that everyone used at the time, glasnost, perestroika, they entered the global language, mm -hmm. you know, the, of reform, of openness. Once he did that, was the game up? In other words, was it inevitable that the minute you began to loosen up a little bit, the communist control of the Soviet Union, the, the thing was going to fall apart? Or could this have played out a different way? Well, it's important to remember that before Gorbachev came to power, and even in the first year or two, everybody doubted that, it, or most people doubted, wrongly, that anything could happen. That anything could happen. And I'm no fan of Ronald Reagan. I mean, right now we hear about the party of Ronald Reagan as if this was some great golden era. It, but I, I have to credit, and not grudgingly, Ronald Reagan for having the insight or instinct or something to see that Gorbachev was different, that, there was, that, that he was sincere. On the other hand, I think his intentions were a moving target, and I think the way he thought, viewed the world was a moving target. In other words, he was a human being capable of changing his mind, which was com in complete contradistinction to what Sovietism was all about. So when he came to power, for political reasons, and I think maybe for sincere reasons, yes, he spoke the language of Leninism, he spoke the, what was called the socialist choice, some choice, um, in, in some socialism. And, but, you know, things shifted. I think the prime example is in Chernobyl. So Chernobyl happens in 1986. Mm -hmm. And he's assured, the Politburo in Moscow is assured by the authorities in the northern Ukraine that things are under control, it's going to be fine. So the control of information is in the old Stalinist mode. Um, the, the regime, in, including Gorbachev in Moscow behaves in the old Stalinist mode, doesn't tell the public anything. But in a matter of days and weeks, Gorbachev flips his wig. He discovers reality, and he is completely changed by this, or changed further. He had come to office saying, Tak jit nilzya, we can no longer live like this. But Chernobyl literally exploded the meaning of, of the possibility and the necessities of what had to happen. So in very short order, he shifts the press, which becomes increasingly open. He shifts the study of history so that not only Stalin is criticized, but Lenin. He, not Ronald Reagan, but he initiates the end of the Cold War, the freedom of religion, relations with all kinds of countries, including Israel, begin to change markedly. The world changed, and it was in no small part because of the initiative of a son of peasants from southern Russia who came to Moscow with a bumpkin accent and uh, an aspiring kind of uh, university education and a shrewd way of dealing with a corrupt and dying communist party and ideology. It's, rather, it's a miraculous story. You, I want to tap into what you said about uh, freedom of religion. We do occasionally talk about Jewish issues on this podcast, perhaps you've noticed, David. You know, once and in a blue, once in a blue moon. Jews, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so let's talk about that. About Gorbachev. You know, first of all, obviously allowing for the revival of Jewish culture and, and study of Hebrew mm. and synagogues, but more importantly, allowing for Jews to leave and immigrate to Israel. How much of that was his affection, if at all, and how much was you know was it realpolitik? Was it pressure from Americans, you know, what was behind that? Well, there had been other Jewish immigrations, and, and, and you know, we now have it, it's now an elderly immigration that you see the remnants of in places like Brighton Beach in Brooklyn, and you see, uh, I remember doing a piece on Amos Oz, and when I went to visit him in Arad, which is um, in the Negev, 
as you know, I was really struck uh, taking an evening walk with Oz through the town. It was really Russian and old. And these were Im- immigrants who had come. This, I guess you would call Arad a, a development town, which you, you need to... Mm-hmm. And, and well, I, not to I, their this, face. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I guess. You're, sorry. Can I have that one back? In any, in any event, I was struck by... Not, not, it, it was quite Russian, and you heard Russian everywhere, and these were older immigrants. So that Russian, which is called the third wave, would be the late 70s, early 80s. But you're 100% right that then there was an even bigger, you know, an even more dramatic uh, release, as it were. People were allowed to get visas, and there was a big wave of immigration, and a lot of it ended up on your shores, obviously, and and Mm -hmm. transformed, in many ways, the politics of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, So, as an issue, he just didn't want that to persist. It was a a paragraph in the long story of, of, of trying to improve relations with the West. Mm-hmm. I wondered if it was one of those things that we've actually seen slightly in the Ukraine-Russia conflict now, which is where things relating to Israel and particularly Jews become a kind of signifier. So that, mm-hmm. you know, that with, that with Zelensky, it's this whole, that he constantly wants Israel support because custodians of the memory of the Holocaust somehow has a kind of symbolic meaning. And therefore... I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously I remember the Gorbachev period, but I don't remember this piece of it, which is, was Gorbachev trying to do a bit of signaling to the West that, look, I am a new guy, and the way I'm going to express that is so. by having a different attitude to matters Jewish, you know, whether it is, as Yoni mentioned, teaching of Hebrew, allowing people to go out, that somehow the symbolism of a Sharansky release or whatever stands in for a new, more modern, more liberal approach. Yeah, and Sharansky was mixed on Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sharansky, because of the nature of, of his ideological and biographical background, is like Gary Kasparov, and like a lot of dissidents, I, I, ab- absolutist gives it a negative cast, but he, he basically thought that Gorbachev was uh, useful, an improvement, maybe even miraculous, but certainly not far enough. Certainly not far enough. What does that mean, really? The guy was in power for seven years. That's mm-hmm. it. I mean, in between March 85 and Christmas night, 1991, here's what was accomplished. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, end of the Cold War, a technological development, freedom to travel, open elections, an attempt, however errant, of... of an entire economic system that was had been under central planning, and the destruction of the remnants of a totalitarian state that had taken root in 1917 on the foundation of a millennium of authoritarian absolutist rule. Joe Biden is celebrated rightly this week for passing a bill. <laughs> passing a bill in two years. <laughs> Israel has had 47 elections in the last two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Britain is about to go from Boris Johnson to Liz Truss. You know, some perspective here is necessary. Now, if you go to Russia this week, obviously, all you will hear about is how terrible Gorbachev was. Putin has just announced that he's refusing to go to Gorbachev's uh, funeral and instead, he placed a wreath at the hospital where Gorbachev died. And the, the miracle is, is that he didn't toss the wreath out of the moving limousine. <laughs> that he paused to lay it down is, is, is to me, a, a concession. There's nothing but contempt for him in, in official Russia. So I, I think it, you know, no prophet is honored in his or her own uh, homeland, and it'll take uh, history a long time to credit Gorbachev. Certainly in, in, in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. You talk about it, it's amazing because it, it always reminds me of Shimon Peres somehow, um, of someone who is lauded as, you know, this bold decision maker outside of their own country, but inside there is no such, you know, affectionate view of him at all. Because Peres, despite all these very interesting achievements of his earlier career, mm-hmm. and, um, some of which were military um, after all, he according to foreign seen, reports, David. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Just wanted to that make that clear. Is, uh, I understand. I understand. Is that um, that he's seen as what they call in Russia a baltoon, 
a blabber, a, you know, he goes on and on. You know, to interview Shimon Peres, you had to make sure your first question was a good one. Um, <laughs> same with Gorbachev. Gorbachev's interviews were, were useless with him. Useless. He, he, just, he just never finished a sentence. He would go on and on and on. Now, how much of this was shrewdness or how much of it was a style, I, I don't know. Maybe a little of both. But I, I, also, Paris is, you know, in the end game, it, the contrast was always with the um, more Gary Cooper-like um, personality of Yitzhak Rabin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of more terse, tougher, uh, thought to be more pragmatic. But in the end, they were joined by the hip as much as they despised each other by a, a unfortunately failed desire to resolve the big thing. Gorbachev is considered a failure because an empire disintegrated. I, I, you know, w- and right now, another irony of history, one of the great things that Gorbachev did was to initiate the end of the constant fear of nuclear apocalypse. By the way, not a bad little accomplishment. Now we have a head of the Russian state who threatens nuclear apocalypse in 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 a misadventure to to say the least in Ukraine right so he 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 threatens the use of nuclear weapons at the beginning of the invasion of U, of Ukraine he lets that one drop and now he's putting pressure on the biggest nuclear plant in Europe in Zaporozhye the contrast could not be stark more stark so i'm going to take it from what you said that you believe he should be considered one of the great figures of history. If that's right, do you think the gap that exists between that view and the view you've described in official Russia, and perhaps even actually Russia, will ever be bridged? A great question. It depends if you believe, as maybe we wrongly believed in the late 80s, 90s, that somehow good things are inevitable, that history marches inevitably upward. And right now, we've seen so much of what was either promised or actually came to be in the late 80s and 90s. In other words, the increase in liberty, freedom, tolerance, um, peace even. Reversed. Reversed. We live in a world now in which an autocrat in Russia, far more autocratic than even Brezhnev in his way, invades Ukraine, tens and tens of thousands of Russians and Ukrainians are dead within a six-month period. The the country is being laid to waste in many ways. Major cities have been shelled unto a fairly well. Not Kiev, but many others. Toward what end, God knows, is beyond unimaginable, even very recently. However, if you believe that somehow good will come out and triumph, then maybe Gorbachev's reputation is reversed, but no time soon. I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic and cling to Tony Kushner's, I think, really final words in, in Angels in America, the world only spins forward. Um, but I don't know if I'm convincing you at all, David, because you... you know. I, I wish you... Look, of course, I, I, Tony Kushner is both an artistic and a moral genius. The question is, is he right? If he's right. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, is he, is he right? And we're living in 2022 when our children, and I think it's a big part of the mental health crisis that's being experienced in a lot of countries, they look at the world they're inheriting uh, ecologically, uh, politically, and the atmosphere is quite different than when I was 28 years old. You know, I have kids you know, who are now as old as I was when I marched off to Moscow. Imagine me telling my grandfather, you know, who escaped Ukraine, I'm going with my new wife to go live in Moscow. <laughs> and, and, and my wife, by the way, Esther Fine, who's then writing for the Times, New York Times, her family had been in camps in Siberia. So we, off we marched, naive little punks, off to, to go live where they had escaped from. In this time of incredible optimism, it's a, it couldn't be more different. Well, we hope the world spins forward. Um, David Remnick, thank you so much for being with us on Unholy. 
Always my pleasure, and I, I, I didn't mean to come and bum you out, but here we are. <laughs> we'll here find we more are. reasons to bring you back, even if you bum us out, David. We promise. I mean, American politics at the moment is showing a little glimmer of light, so <laughs> you never know. Sarah Palin lost, for God's sake. That is a glimmer. Oh, that's a ray of light. That doesn't even a glimmer. Man, she's to, the OG. Have, she's the OG. <laughs> we have to find these oh, blessings where we, where we can find them. <laughs> right. Um, terrific. Thank you. Right. As always. Be well. Thank you, David. Always good really to talk great. to you. We'll talk Take to you care. soon. Bye-bye. I love him being on Unholy, but he does talk brilliantly about so many things. But his, his recall of that period in Russia, no one better on that very particular period. It was obviously formative for him. Um, it came at a crucial point in his own life, but formative for the world. Those those years of sort of chaos and transition. Lenin's Tomb, if you haven't read it, it's a brilliant evocation of that. And, you know, it's a, it's amazing when he comes on and tells us uh, and recalls for us, evokes for us that period um we have awards to hand out uh Yoni. we do why don't you we kick do. us off with uh, uh with chutzpah okay okay the first chutzpah of our third season so it should be a good one i hope jonathan um let's talk about another jonathan jonathan pollard of course the uh, jewish american spy who uh, was uh, incarcerated for 30 years and made aliyah very recently in 2020 uh we should say something about him you know, obviously being a source of shame for uh, American Jews and for many Israelis, but for the Israeli right, he has become something of a hero. Um, you know, Netanyahu, more than anyone, I think, made him a symbol when he came to power in 1996. The Israeli right was saying, you know, the United States was hiding information from us and Pollard brought it to light and he's this sort of hero. Now, he is now here in Israel. It is an election season, as we said, and he decided to endorse one of the candidates. The person who he decided to endorse is Ayala Chaked. Ayala Chaked is, of course, from the Israeli right, but she's the person who supported Naftali Bennett when he decided to become prime minister and the whole Netanyahu camp is really, really, you know, against her. So uh, let's just begin with the fact that Pollard himself, when he explained why he supports Ayala Chaked, saying that, I quote, even though, quote, Shaked has exhibited misplaced loyalty to the previous government led by Naftali Bennett, she, he thinks that she will not repeat her error. Now, I'm just saying Jonathan Pollard is talking about misplaced loyalty. <laughs> Irony is locking itself up in a maximum security prison <laughs> for life without parole. But this is not the end of this wonderful story, because as I told you, the Israeli right kind of railed against Jonathan Pollard for being uh, a for a yellow chiked. And one of uh, Netanyahu's acolytes, uh, Shlomo Kari, tweeted and then erased his tweet. You know, they are going to betray you, Pollard, if you go on this mission. Now, I would just suggest everyone involved in the story, stop using the words loyalty, betrayal, and all of those. Just walk away from these words. Um, but besides this being, I mean, there's enough chutzpah to go around in the story. Oh, by the way, the end of it, of course, is that uh, Pollard rescinded his, uh, his um, endorsement of Shaked. I just think that this is such a way of showing how we used this word in this program before, uh, inflation in this show, really, the inflation of these words, you know, betrayal, loyalty, all of these words, when it's just politics, right? No one is betraying anyone. Naftali Bennett became prime minister instead of Netanyahu, and that is it. Like, so this is, this is what I wanted. This is the story I wanted to tell. No, it's a fantastic chutzpah example, because you're right. If you were Jonathan Pollard, who served in jail for betraying your country, and who caused discomfort to American Jews, but diaspora Jews the world over, for embodying the anti-Semitic trope of divided dual loyalties, and not just divided loyalties, but literally uh, treacherous loyalties, uh, because he was spying against his own country. He was an employee of the American government who shipped secrets off to Israel and therefore blew open all those things that, you know, anti-Semites for centuries have said about Jews and how they can't be trusted. If you were that him, you would stay as absolutely as you say, you would never allow in your vocabulary publicly the words loyalty or betrayal. Uh, my very trivial take on this is just, I, I saw the video of him making this um, endorsement and he's physically transformed. He looks like now a kind of Haredi Jew in, in his... Um, he had the kind of Judaica around him and the white shirt and the long white beard. Mm -hmm. He's be, he look, he's going for a kind of rabbinic look. 
study quietly on your own, Mr. Pollard. You don't need to make political pronouncements uh, and certainly not ones involved with the words betrayal and loyalty. So a worthy winner for chutzpah. Uh, for Mensch, uh, my eye was caught by a decision of New York State to pass a new law requiring art museums uh, to or galleries to prominently label any art that was looted during the Holocaust as such, uh, uh, which would be really fascinating. I mean, if that was played out and that big art museums did have to reveal the provenance, given how much art that was stolen from Jews and from art collectors, dealers by the Nazis during the war and has, has spread across the world. It's an interesting move. And at least, you know, in a way, I don't know what will actually happen practically to the law, but by passing it, they draw attention to this issue. Uh, so that would be uh, a candidate for Mensch. But our conversation with David Remnick uh, made me think that given how little honour Mikhail Gorbachev is getting in his own country, where Vladimir Putin is not even going to attend the funeral, given that there are Jews who are around the world, and particularly in Israel, who were able to live Jewish lives and free lives because of some of the decisions that Mikhail Gorbachev set in train, I think uh, retrospectively, posthumously, we can make uh, Gorbachev mention of the week for the impact he had, obviously for Jews, but for the wider world as well. He's not getting on it in his own country. So a little bit of a nod from us to him. I agree. But it was strange to me that you, you didn't use the word betrayal or loyalty at all in your um, Mensch Award nominee. So that's strange. I'm kidding. Um, okay, great. So we're winding up our conversation. We're very glad that you're back from vacation, Jonathan. It was touch and go there for a while. I was kind of worried you might not come back. Uh, yeah. I and I'd have to do two Jews on the news by myself. Which wouldn't that be the same, would it? No, I have a feeling you've had this worry before when I've gone on holiday that somehow <laughs> a two or three day holiday feels like two or three weeks and is it ever gonna it's a jewish angst you've got there um unholy goes on we can have a little summer break but we come back it's like with our little dog freddy who we had to uh, you know board with others we reassured him we will come back and uh, and freddy is very happy and his tail is wagging once more um so we do come back even when we have a little break we will be back next week for another uh, edition of unholy and I very much look forward to seeing you rested, even in your own way, you're neat, then in just a few <laughs> days' time. Eyes open. That's how I rest. We'll say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, to Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashan. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.